I invite you now, let's, let's have a, a, a short season of prayer when we get started into our study this morning. So if you can, please kneel with me. We come before the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. The opportunity that's been given to us, not only for salvation, but to meet with Thee every seventh day. And that You meet with us, the God of all creation. How can we wrap our minds around that? We are so thankful, Lord, that You are who You say You are. We live in a world of deception, and yet we can trust Thee. Father, we come together on this Sabbath day to worship You. We pray, Lord, that You will be with each and every one of us. That You will send the Holy Spirit to be with us, and angels from heaven. We may join together in singing songs of praise from our hearts. That when we come to Your Word and open it, that we will be guided into the truth. We pray, Lord, that our hearts may be softened to receive the principles that You have for us. We pray for grace to overcome our difficulties and to put these principles into practice. We thank You so much for the church, for the family that You've created that we can be a part of. We're thankful for Jesus. So thankful for Jesus who's given us another chance, who's forgiven us, who's given us an example of how to speak, how to think, how to behave as a citizen of heaven. Father, we pray that you will be with those who couldn't be here, those who are on the sick bed, those who are injured. Pray for Wayne, who's battling cancer. We pray that you be very near to him and his family. We pray for Rollins' mother, we pray for my wife's client, Alo. You know, we see the effects of sin in our life, don't we, Father, as we, we get older. We pray for healing. Be with us, Lord, as we get here towards the end of time. We pray for grace and mercy. We pray that we may be found faithful. So please forgive us our sins. And Lord, I ask humbly that you give me the words to speak to the congregation, that they're your words, that they will be accepted, that they will be studied and accepted. And our families, Lord, our children may become one with thee, that we may be in order, gospel order, on the foundation of Christ. We may finish this work and hasten his return. We thank you for the promise, Lord. And for hearing this prayer as we pray it in the blessed name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I want to share with you what a privilege and joy it is, really, from the bottom of my heart, for me to come together with the saints on God's holy day, the holy Sabbath day. You know, God has promised a special blessing for all who keep the Sabbath holy. Do you believe that? 
He's promised it. We need a special blessing to overcome the obstacles that Satan puts in our way. Isn't that true? Especially when we try to organize according to God's plan. God's will for us. Do you want God to bless you as He's promised, friends? I'll tell you, I do. (laughs) And by faith, I expect a blessing today. Amen? We've spent some time taking a look at what God has to tell us in regard to the family firm. Or, sometimes it's referred to as the family circle. And I want to share with you a statement I shared before, and see if you remember it. It's from the Adventist homepage 37. It says, The first work of Christians, and that grabbed my attention. Because something's got to be first, doesn't it? And she says, The first work of Christians is to be united in the family. That's our first work. Our first work is to be united in the family. Then, see, it's a kind of a conditional statement, isn't it? We're to be united in the family. That's our first work. Then the work is to extend to their neighbors nigh and afar off. That's an incredible statement. Sometimes we get the the cart before the horse. Don't we? We think that our mission, and we've seen this in a couple of the past studies, we talked about the the role of the the woman in being a missionary in her home. And sometimes we as people, we, we think the mission field the more important mission field is out there somewhere. But our first work as Christians is in our home. God has set the goal for us. And He provides instruction. He provides grace to reach the goal. And in order for the family to be truly united, the members need to be educated. We first need to be consecrated to God, to be educated in the things of God. We've spoken of that before. We need to be Christian. And then each member must understand the will of the Lord in regards to their role in the family. And not only just understand it, understanding God's will for you, the role He has assigned you to, not only to understand the will, but to accept your role in the family. That's where some difficulties come in. Remember that it'll have a it'll have a ripple effect from the individual to the family and onto the church. And that's the ideal. There are certain situations you know, that Paul counseled about when you have an unbelieving spouse, for example. Your mission is to be an example to that spouse of Christ. So there are some we have a lot of dysfunctional, quote, dysfunctional families. Not only from the world's standards, but definitely from God's standards. How does God change a dysfunctional family into a functional family? Well, they've got to be Christians. They've got to see Jesus. They've got to accept Jesus. Receive Him into their hearts, and He'll work the changes. He'll change the hearts. He'll work and instruct and educate to bring you into gospel order. Notice this, the Adventist home, page 319. 
unless you manifest meekness, kindness, and courtesy in your home, your religion will be vain. If there were more genuine home religion, there would be more power in the church. We wonder, why is the church in such a fallen condition? And you've heard me say before, you can trace it back to the family. Because church begins in the home. (laughs) And we've looked at that before. Notice this, Adventist Home, page 323. In the home, it is possible to have a little church which will honor and glorify the Redeemer. In the home. She's talking about the family. And we've covered some of that before. And like I said, we can trace the apostasy of the professed church back to the disorder of their families, which causes them to become dysfunctional, out of order. God cannot bless disorder. And this is why our first work as Christians is to be united in the family. Then we move on from there. I think it's pretty easy to see. And let me tell you that as we learn the principles of order from God, and by faith adhere to them as Christian families, it's going to have a positive effect upon all families, especially those that are dysfunctional. You see, because the principles of God are for everyone, no matter where you find yourself. Always keep that in mind. The principles of God are for everyone. Now, we've taken uh, a good look previously at the roles of men and husbands and fathers, as well as, uh, you know, the woman, wives, mothers. And there's one more area concerning the family circle that needs to be addressed, I think, before we begin comparing family order with that of church order. Uh, family organization with church organization. We need to take a look at the role that children have in the family circle. Have you ever considered that term, family circle? Why circle? (laughs) May the circle be unbroken? Well, think about this for a moment. When someone has transitioned through all aspects of life and has returned to their beginnings, we say they have come full circle. Heard that expression? Social groups are sometimes called a circle of friends or a a community circle. When the apparent... um, Solution to a problem in a series of events creates a new problem and increases the difficulty of solving the original problem. It's called a vicious circle. But what is meant by these expressions? What is meant by the term family circle? And and you're on the right track. According to Webster's Dictionary, and I use the 1828 edition, One definition for the word family is this. The collective body of persons who live in one house and under one head or manager. A household including parents, children, and servants, and as the case may be, lodgers or boarders. That's their definition of family. And notice that the family is under 
one head. I found that to be rather interesting. The same Webster's Dictionary has several definitions for the word circle, but two of them help us, I think, with our question. The first is a noun for circle, and it says, an assembly surrounding the principal person. That's rather interesting. Hence, any company or assembly as a circle of friends or of beauties. Hence, the word came to signify indefinitely a number of persons of a particular character. Isn't that interesting? Of a particular character. Whether associated or not, as a political circle. The circle of one's acquaintance. Having, however, reference to a primary association. So, it's an an assembly surrounding the principal person. That's a noun for circle. The second definition that they gave is a verb for circle. To move round, to revolve round, which is kind of where you were going with what you were saying. To encircle, to encompass, to surround, to enclose, to circle in, to confine. But I like this, to keep together. To keep together. So the term family circle is specifically speaking about a group of people who live under one head that keeps them all together. Does that make sense? A family circle. Now in regards to the physical family circle, who does the group live under? Who is to keep the group together? And we talk about the family circle, who keeps them together? Who would be the head of the family circle? Think about what we've we've studied the last few weeks. Who is the head of the family circle? It'd be the house band, wouldn't it? The husband. Who would be the head of the the church family circle? It'd be the pastor. I'm talking about the local church. The pastor or minister, right? So, I hope you're starting to see how family order directly relates to church order. Now, as Christians, we understand that we have one spiritual head that we live under and who keeps us all together. That's Jesus Christ. So don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying, okay? Correct order comes from Christ as He is the author of it. We read that, 1 Corinthians 14.33. For God is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all churches of the saints. Okay? Now, describing such groups as circles, I think, is rather interesting. Did you know that the word circle, and, and, and uh, I encourage you to check this out, the word circle is found just once in the King James Version of the Bible. Just once. Circle. It's found in chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah. And this is where Isaiah points to evidences of the infinite power of God as an encouragement to His people. Let's look at it. Isaiah chapter 40. We'll begin with verse 21. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. Have ye not known... Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, 
and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. The picture here is that of God enthroned above the vast heavens and all are encircled under Him. It's God that holds all things together. Isn't that true? Especially the family. And this is the ultimate definition for family circle. God is the one that holds it together. God is the head of the family circle in the ultimate sense. And always keep that in mind. For without God we fall well short of gospel order in our family. And so, we see here, God is the enthroned above. And so the Bible tells us that God sits upon a throne, right? What does that make Him? That makes Him king, doesn't it? Psalms 47, beginning with verse 6. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises unto our King... Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. You know, not just gibberish. Praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. God, friends, is in charge. (laughs) He's at the top. So, God encircles the earth as king, keeping his family all together. Now, let me ask you a question. Thinking, as we do, as men think, as humans, what distinguishes a king from anyone else? What is it that all kings wear that lets everyone else know that they're king? Good, Alex. A crown. What does a crown represent? Well, it can represent a number of things. But mainly it represents power and authority. Kings of the earth have crowns, and in many of these crowns, what do you find? Colorful jewels, don't you? The jewels say something about the king and his kingdom. The more jewels, the greater the king and kingdom. History testifies that when one king was slain by a rival, his crown was taken as a trophy to show how much greater the rival was than that king. And thus much more worthy to be the ruler. See? And this is how it is with earthly kingdoms. But Jesus said that his kingdom is what? It's not of this world. But God is a king and he has a kingdom. God has a crown. And it too is filled with jewels. But not how we imagine. Not like earthly kings, necessarily. They represent something else, don't they? The jewels in the crown of Jesus, they represent each person that is redeemed. Do you believe that? Let's look at Malachi chapter 3 and verse 17. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son 
that serveth Him. And so God says that all who belong to Him are jewels. What are jewels? Essentially, what are they? They're stones, they're rocks, aren't they? They start out as dull, rough stones that need a lot of polishing to shine. And not only do these stones need polish, but they also may need to have the rough edges removed, cut. I think that's a great description of God's people. We each start out as dirty and rough characters that need work before we can shine. And if we choose, you know what happens? God will polish us. And He'll remove our rough edges to fit us for His crown. Isn't that remarkable? I'm going to share this with you. Short little quote from the 1888 materials. Page 886. To save souls from death would be placing jewels in the crown of Jesus Christ and stars in our own crowns in the kingdom of heaven. So each soul that's saved from the the second death, beloved, is a jewel in the crown of Christ. And if we had anything to do with that, bringing that person to the kingdom, we receive a star in our crown. Something else to consider that brings us to the specifics, really, of our study is that in God's eyes, we are children. We are either His children or we're children of the devil. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, he says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And you remember the reply from Jesus to the Pharisees that you you find in John chapter 8. And in particular, verse 44, He laid it out. That there's two families. You're either a part of one or the other when it comes to to God's kingdom. He, He said to the Pharisees, Ye are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. So who is our father? Who is your father? It's your choice. Now none of us had a choice as to who our earthly father was but spiritually speaking we do have a choice. We either choose God or we choose Satan. To teach more about the relationship between man and God and about our character and His, God told Adam and Eve to have children themselves, didn't He? It's a great lesson to create a child. (laughs) In Genesis 1, verse 27-28, we've seen this I think even the last time we were together. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. This was before the fall, friends. Now, besides replenishing the earth, 
why else would the Lord want men and women to become parents? And I shared this with you last time, and I want to share it again. Because it's, it's just like God. To teach us more about Him by having a hands-on experience ourselves. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 647. Care and affection for dependent children removes the roughness from our natures. It polishes us, see, as jewels for Christ's crown. So care and affection for dependent children removes the roughness from our natures, makes us tender and sympathetic, and has an influence to develop the nobler elements of our character. So, it's a two-way transaction. We have children. Children help to polish us. We help to polish them and prepare them to be jewels. So, having children not only teaches us something about God, but it also helps to develop our character to be like that of Christ. And children are a gift from God for many reasons. Not only to help us become better members of the family and kingdom of God, but for us to help them to be the same. Children are jewels too. Potential jewels. Maybe is a better way to describe it. Notice this. This is from the periodical Good Health. May 1st, 1889. Ellen White. Oh, I've got to sneeze. Wow, excuse me. She says, Let parents regard their children as precious jewels entrusted to their care by the Heavenly Father. Jewels that are to be rendered back with all the roughness and coarseness removed. So you see, as God removes the roughness and coarseness from us, we've become educated. You see? And as we have children, we can use those principles that God is teaching us with them. So as we give them back, all the roughness and coarseness is removed. They're shaped and they're polished for the heavenly setting, she says. You know, when you have jewelry, you have, you know, in a ring, you can have a particular stone set in the ring. We're to be preparing jewels to be set in the crown of Christ. Amen? The Bible says <clears throat> that man was made in the image of God. We just read it, didn't we? Genesis 1. And he gives us opportunities to learn what he is like by allowing us to create children as well. Isn't it amazing how God teaches us about his character and kingdom? It's amazing. For example... Let's continue this thought of the redeemed being jewels in the crown of Jesus. Let's look back at the children of Israel and their experience, for example, when leaving Egypt. After the plagues fell, God told Israel that they would not leave Egypt empty-handed. Well, what were they to bring with them to meet with God? Well, spoils is what it's called. Spoils. Let's look at it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 21. 
and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor. Now that word borrow, really in the, in the Hebrew is, is a better rendered ask. Because they weren't going to return anything. You know, sometimes, you know, <laughs> I did it when I was young. I'd go to my dad and I'd say, hey dad, can I borrow 20 bucks? Well, I never planned on really returning the 20 bucks to Dad. But see, Dad understood what I was saying. I was asking him for 20 bucks. My children have done the same with me. And on a couple of occasions, I've done the same with them. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Verse 22, But every woman shall borrow, that's ask, of her neighbor, and of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver, and jewels of gold, and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons, and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. So the Lord commanded the people to ask for jewels from the Egyptians, who had, essentially, they had profited from Israel's slave labor. And when, and when given, they were to take these jewels, Where? So they go and they ask for all these things. The Egyptians give it to them. Because God, God laid that on the Egyptians' hearts, you find. You read through Exodus there. So what did they do with these jewels? Why were they... What did they do? They took these jewels and then what? They took them out of Egypt, didn't they? They would take these precious stones with them to do what? To meet with God. Isn't that interesting? And as they gathered together before the Lord, He instructed them to make Him a tabernacle to dwell in. Now, of course, this is further down in Exodus. And the people brought their jewels to God. Exodus 35, verse 22. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted. As many as were willing-hearted and brought bracelets and earrings, and rings, and tablets, all jewels of gold, and every man that offered offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. Spiritually speaking here, we are to take our children and willing neighbors out of spiritual Egypt and bring them as shining jewels to God. Now it's significant to know that those who selfishly kept the jewels of Egypt for themselves, remember we read there in verse 22, as many as were willing-hearted, it said. But those who kept the jewels of Egypt for themselves, what'd they do? Well, they, they polished them after their own rough and coarse character. And then they perished in the wilderness journey. They never made it to the promised land. Those who gave their jewels to God, polished after His character, entered the promised land, them and their children. And friends, God has given us jewels in the gift of our children. So what do we do with our jewels? Do we consecrate them to the Lord, or do we consecrate them to ourselves? Are we polishing them to be jewels in the crown of Jesus? Or are we putting them in our own crowns? forming them after our image. 
Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 16. And of thy garments thou didst take, and deckest thou high places with diverse colors, and platest the harlot thereupon. The like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. Thou hast also taken thy fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given thee, and madest to thyself images of men, and didst commit whoredom with them. Like I, like I asked, are we polishing the jewels we've been given to be set in the crown of Jesus? Or are we polishing them for someone else? What are our responsibilities before God in regard to our children? And what are their roles in the family circle? We're going to consider the parents' responsibilities uh, first, and then the children's roles in the family circle. And, And I believe, friends, that this is going to teach us a valuable lesson about church order as well. You can see the principles involved here. From the book Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 1, page 155. This is actually a very good book. There's a lot of fantastic principles and and truth in it. I encourage you to to read it. I think you can find it online and read it online. Mind, Character, and Personality. She says, those who regard the marriage relation as one of God's sacred ordinances, guarded by His holy precept, will be controlled by the dictates of reason. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Because what are you doing? If you're regarding the marriage relations as one of God's sacred ordinances, you regard God as your Lord and Savior. And so you're going to be controlled by the dictates of reason. She says, such will feel that their children are precious jewels committed to their keeping by God to remove from their natures the rough surface by discipline that their luster may may appear. They will feel under most solemn obligations to so form their characters that they may do good in their life, bless others with their light, and the the world be better for their having lived in it. And they be finally fitted for the higher life, the better world, to shine in the presence of God and the Lamb forever. Lovely statement. Lovely. So we have to look at ourselves as parents. We say, look, have we dedicated our lives to God? When we came and and were married, did we actually believe that it was one of God's sacred ordinances? Are we controlled by the dictates of reason because of that? Well, if we have God in our heart and in our life, we are controlled by the dictates of reason. And what that's saying is, we're not controlled by the carnal heart. See? So the first responsibility for parents is that they are to learn to love their children. But you say, well, Pastor Joel, a, a parent naturally loves their child. Well, in many respects this may be true, but some parents hate their children. You see, love is more than mere emotion. Many parents, especially today, they love the idea of having a child, but they do not really love their child. 
They love their child. Incredible to witness. They love their child more like a pet. What does the child do for me emotionally at the present time? In such a case, the parent will have a love, hate, roller coaster ride in their reaction to their children. Titus chapter 2, verse 4. Paul's admonition to, to Titus, he says that they may teach, this is speaking about the uh, older women of Israel, they were required to hand down and teach the young women how to be mothers, how to be a manager of a home, how to do you know, the hands-on practicalities of a home, etc. And so Paul's saying that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. They had to be taught that. They had to be instructed. You see, children are a blessing from God. They're not a curse. But now, there are varying types of love, aren't there? And I was just speaking about this to someone yesterday. In the New Testament, the Greeks had three main words to convey the ideas that we tried to express here, those who speak English, by that English word love. Agapan, Philene, and Aram. Philene, in general, describes affectionate, sentimental love that's based on the emotions and feelings. Now, we were created with emotions and feelings, okay? But this, <clears throat> when she talked about ha- having, uh, we're con- being tr- controlled by reason, those who aren't being controlled by reason are being controlled by filiine and maybe some aspects of Iran as well because Iran denotes passionate, sensual love. Love that is in the f- more in the physical plane, you see. Certain forms of infatuation can be classed under you know, this type of, quote, love. And by the way, just as an insight, the Greek word Iran is not used in the New Testament anywhere. <clears throat> yeah, you won't find it in the New Testament, the word, Greek word Iran. Agapan adds, what it does, it adds principle to the feelings in such a way that principle controls the feelings. And this is how what she means by being controlled by reason. See, It brings into play the higher powers of the mind and intelligence. Whereas Philean tends to make us love only those who love us, Agapan extends love even to those who do not love us. See, Because Agapan is selfless, whereas Iran is purely selfish, and even Philean may at times be marred by you know, selfishness, for they have self more in mind. And what Paul is speaking of here in Titus, when he talks about to love your children, he's talking about a tender, temperate, holy, and wise affection. He's talking about agapan. And this is something that's learned at the foot of the cross, friends, in having an experience with Christ. And so Titus was instructed to teach the converted to love their children as God loves us. Okay? And so, parents, your behavior is to be Christ-like. 
especially with your children. And for that to happen, you must know Christ, isn't that right? So we're to be patient and loving with our children as Christ is patient and loving with us. In most all cases, you'll find, friends, that the behavior of our children is modeled after our own. Because, see, we are their teacher. They observe. They learn by observing. Especially when they're very young. And so, if you want loving and obedient children, you must be loving and obedient to God. Notice this. Child Guidance. Another very, very good book. Child Guidance, page 259. Fathers and mothers, in the home you are to represent God's disposition. You are to require obedience, not with a storm of words, but in a kind, loving manner. You are to be so full of compassion that your children will be drawn to you. Where does compassion, love, originate? It originates with God, doesn't it? Many times in the Gospels, you see where the expression was made, Jesus had compassion upon them. Right? And this is what we must have in our hearts. We can't put it there ourselves, friends. Only God can do that for us. Here's another quote from a Review and Herald article dated November 15, 1892. She says, Great care should be exercised by parents lest they treat their children in such a way as to provoke obstinacy, disobedience, and rebellion. Parents often stir up the worst passions of the human heart because of their lack of self-control. They correct them, that's children, in a spirit of anger, and rather confirm them in their evil ways and defiant spirit, than influence them in the way of right. By their own arbitrary spirit, they thrust their children under satanic influences. Isn't that incredible? Arbitrary, what's that mean? Sometimes I've seen in in public, it's like parents make rules, just arbitrary rules, for their child. But by their own arbitrary spirit, she says, they thrust their children under satanic influences instead of rescuing them from the snares of Satan by gentleness and love. How sad it is that many parents who profess to be Christians are not converted. Christ does not abide in their hearts by faith. While professing to be followers of Jesus, they disgust their children and by their violent, unforgiving temper make them averse to all religion. It is little wonder that the children become cold and rebellious towards their parents. So as we studied before, friends, it really does start in the home, doesn't it? It starts in the home. And I would say, the love of Jesus in one's heart is the key to training up our children in the ways of God. That's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? The love of Jesus in your heart. Now, you're still, in our situation, we were uneducated in many respects to what I'm sharing with you today. We were uneducated in this. And so, there are many who are in a like situation and mistakes are made. We've got to be very careful, don't we? We've got to seriously consider our responsibilities before having children. We read about that before. 
Psalms 127, verse 3. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Isn't it? Isn't that an interesting statement? You know, the, the open space at the gate of a city you know, was where judgment was made. It was where uh, a place where questions were settled, questions maybe under dispute. And what the psalmist is saying here, he's saying that these sons were not ashamed to plead their father's cause because they were raised as unto the Lord. Their father raised them up in love, with love and compassion as God has love and compassion towards us. They were raised understanding obedience and obedience was required. And what happened? They loved their parents. They loved their father in return. And they stood at the gate ready to defend him against any false charges. They were taught to lovingly stand for truth and righteousness, you see, by their parents. And so love begats love. And I'm talking about that agape, the love of God. That love that has control over the emotion, filiin, especially over Iran, physical. We can only learn that from Christ. Love begets love. Second responsibility, the Lord has given parents the solemn obligation to train their children in the paths of righteousness. Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we are hanging our hat on that. That's a promise from God. That's why you're never to stop praying for your children. Especially so when they're out of your home. So, when we look at this, the training of your children, parents are encouraged in today's world to leave the training of their children to others. Or to the government. Now that's very dangerous, don't you think? Have you ever heard of Common Core today? Governments look at people as numbers, not as people. They look at them as sheeple <laughs> to be slaughtered, to be abused, to be used. Take all the resources from and then put them to death. It's dangerous. Dangerous world we live in. But the Lord says what? That parents are to train their children how to live for God. That will not happen in the world for it's at enmity with God. I talked a little bit about it, you know, in discussing the role of the mother. What school is your child going to attend? Is it going to be the school of Christ or of the world? And that's a decision you have to make. God teaches us, doesn't He? When we're in the school of Christ, God teaches us. And we're to teach our children in like manner. If we understand and experience for ourselves that God is love, and I think not a tyrant, which many see Him as, then we can have good results with our training. Of course, we are all 
um, continuing to learn in the school of Christ. And sometimes we make mistakes. But mistakes can teach lessons in compassion and grace, can they not? And parents who love their children will do what's best for them. And this includes providing for their mental, their physical, and their spiritual needs. What does that require? Well, it requires taking time with children. Quality and quantity time. You know, abusing and neglecting children is not love. And what to do? It actually trains them to love the carnal more than the spiritual things of life. To have a rebellious spirit. Notice this, from Adventist Home, page 280. Let it be remembered that children are not to be treated as though they were our own personal property. Children are the heritage of the Lord. And the plan of redemption... Now, I don't want the children to think, oh, well, we're sovereign of ourselves. No, you're under your parents' rule. Okay? But the parents aren't to treat you as their own property. You belong to God. As she says, children are the heritage of the Lord. And the plan of redemption includes their salvation as well as ours. They have been entrusted to parents in order that they might be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that they might be qualified to do their work in time and eternity. Look upon them as a sacred charge. Not to be indulged, petted, and idolized. Boy, we see a lot of that today with children. But to be taught to live pure, noble lives. They are God's property. He loves them and calls upon you to cooperate with Him in helping them to form perfect characters. It's a good statement. It's been my experience that when people come to a realization that God actually does love them, they are then most willing to be taught by Him. Does that make sense? It's no different with our children. If we love them as God does and they experience that love, then they become more willing to be instructed. Now, they're also growing and they're going to be pushing the limits because they still are learning to battle that inward nature. We have to expect that. Ephesians 6 and verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There isn't much in the family unit that's more important than learning love and compassion and especially towards our children. How do we react to them? Do we make them feel that they're less important to us than something else, some hobby, something else? Review and Herald, April 21st, 1904. Remember that your children are young in years and experience. In controlling and disciplining them, be firm but kind. Encourage them to do their duty as members of the family firm. Express your appreciation of the efforts they put forth to conquer their inclinations to wrong. Let the word of God be your rule and keep and ever keep in mind the responsibilities for which in the great day of judgment you must give account. We need to be firm. You can't be their, quote, friend all the time. 
See, you're you have the responsibility to train them. Okay. Review and Herald, December thirty first, nineteen oh one. Parents are to teach their children the need of obedience. And they are to live so that their children can honor and obey them. They are never to provoke their children to wrath, but are to deal with them as the younger members of the Lord's family. They are to require obedience, being sure at the same time that their own will is in subjection to the will of God. Parents who desire their children to be patterns of piety must be patterns of piety themselves. That's pretty plain. So friends, we must have our own personal walk with the Lord in order to be effective in teaching our children about His righteousness. And by the way, as we talk about such things like this, please uh, keep in mind how this parallels with the roles of church members and gospel order of the church. How does this teach us about church organization? Well, new converts that have been born again are babes in Christ, aren't they? They are children in the family of God and need to be taught by example and word more and more about Jesus. Leaders and experienced church members are to be, in a sense, like parents to these babes in Christ. It is their responsibility to teach them in the ways of the Lord by their behavior, by precept, by example. And you can instruct them as well. Now you're not over them, necessarily like a parent, you know, per se. They don't live in your home, but they're in the Lord's house, aren't they? Some leaders just show up on Sabbath, and that's the only time such spiritual children are instructed. Like a, a father who only shows up a couple days a week. They're failing in their duty and their responsibility. We can learn a lesson by looking at the experience of Abraham and how he kept his household together. Genesis 18, verse 19. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Well, what do we... What do we learn about this? Abraham could be trusted. He wouldn't betray God. It was to be his duty to pass on to future generations what he knew of God's dealings with the human race. And Abraham not only prayed with and before his family, but he also interceded for them as priest of the family. We covered the priest of the home, the that the father is to be. We covered that in discussion and leader of the home in our study on that. But Abraham, as a prophet as well, he instructed his family in both the theory and the practice of religion with emphasis on the practical virtues of religion. That's why we find in the home life gain an experience. He taught his family not only to know these things but to do them as well. A benevolent husband, Abraham was. He was a benevolent father a supervisor. He gave positive direction to the social and religious life of his vast family circle. Abraham would command his family, we read there in Genesis 18. 
not by dictatorial methods, friends, but by clear precept and consistent example. You see, in training children, every word, every look and act has its effect. And I'll tell you something. It's said that Abraham's family had a thousand members. Over a thousand. And there were a number of different households within his family. He had to have order. <laughs> Didn't he? In many homes, there's little training by way of either instruction or example. That's why we see such dysfunction in the church and in society. Parents are held accountable for the sacred trust of children and should therefore combine what? Firmness and love, as Abraham did. And because of the unity and order in his household, Abraham and his family were powerful witnesses for God to all the heathen around them. In the book Education, page 187, that which gave power to Abraham's teaching was the influence of his own life. His great household consisted of more than a thousand souls, many of them heads of families, and not a few, but newly converted from heathenism. Such a household required a firm hand at the helm. No weak, vacillating methods would suffice. Abraham knew God. God knew Abraham. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. That's how you train your family, your children. The Adventist Home, page 279. Christ placed such a high estimate upon your children that He gave His life for them. Treat them as the purchase of His blood. Patiently and firmly train them for Him. Discipline with love and forbearance. As you do this, they will become a crown of rejoicing to you and will shine as lights in the world. It's our responsibility, friends. I've got to move along quickly here. The third responsibility. Parents are to properly discipline their children. You know, virtually all forms of punishment are opposed by our society. Especially um, what we would term spanking. But are we to follow the Word of God? Or are we to follow the world? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. 
Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Beloved, the Father in Heaven is an example to parents in how to chasten children. Correct discipline causes the child to respect parents and authority in general and teaches them to act righteously. At times, spanking the child may be necessary. Spanking is not contrary to love. Don't listen to the world. Properly done, it is an act of love for the child's good to teach him to live right. It should never be done because the parents lost their temper or to satisfy a lust for control or some parents, I think, just love to dole out pain. Proverbs 13, verse 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Meaning at times, when it's needed. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Now the word beat should be rendered as strike. Sometimes it becomes necessary to use capital punishment and physically strike the child in a correct manner. But this is not to be done in the heat of passion. This is where many parents, you know, they get it wrong. Remember that children are the property of God, aren't they? And they're to be treated as He would want them to be treated. God God disciplines us, doesn't He? But He does it in the best way. Not to break our will or our spirit, but to teach us. And we're to do the same with our children. Child Guidance, page 251. Never give your child a passionate blow unless you want him to learn to fight and quarrel. As parents, you stand in the place of God to your children. And you are not, excuse me, and you are to be on guard. You may have to punish with the rod. This is sometimes essential. But defer any settlement of the difficulty until you have settled the case with yourselves. Ask yourself, have I submitted my way and will to God? Have I placed myself where God can manage me so that I may have wisdom, patience, kindness, and love in dealing with the refractory elements in our home? Go to God first. Child Guidance, page 252. First reason with your children. Clearly point out their wrongs and impress upon them that they have not only sinned against you, but against God. With your heart full of pity and sorrow for your erring children, pray with them before correcting them. Then they will see that you do not punish them because they have put you to inconvenience or because you wish to vent your displeasure upon them, but from a sense of duty for their good and they will love and respect you. These are principles, friends. Now, there are different methods of discipline depending on their age. You have to take that into consideration. But when old enough to understand reason, then reason with them and pray before administering the punishment. How many of you pray with your child before you discipline them? Something to consider. Fourth responsibility. This will be the last one. You are to have rules for the home and consistently enforce them. Inconsistency actually provokes a child to anger. It does. Parents should agree and work in harmony 
in the training and the discipline of the children. Matthew 12, verse 25. Principle here. Jesus said, He said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. You can't, you can't have unity in the home unless you follow God's precepts for the home. The Adventist home, page 314. The family firm must be well organized. Together, the father and mother must consider their responsibilities. This is why we've been going through this. And with a clear comprehension, undertake their task. There is to be no variance. The father and mother should never, in the presence of their children, criticize each other's plans and judgment. That is oh so important. We discovered that late. (laughs) But that's so important. Take your discussion into a closed room where it can be done privately. Never be critical of each other in front of your children. You know what happens? The devil will use that. He's going to use it to plant the seed of rebellion in the heart of that child. And parents must be careful. This is the other end of the pendulum. You've got to be careful not to become overcritical of your children's attempts to obey. Remember, they're children who are learning. Be compassionate and merciful like our God is towards us. Adventist Home, page 308. There is danger of too severely criticizing small things. Criticism that is too severe, rules that are too rigid, lead to the disregard of all regulations, and by and by children thus educated will show the same disrespect for the laws of Christ. One other thing goes along with this. There is to be no favoritism expressed by the parents, ever. Children must be treated fairly and justly. Now, you may not love them. You know, I've heard that expression, well, I love you all the same. Yeah. Partly true, partly not true. <laughs> but no favoritism. That's what got um, Jacob in trouble with Joseph, see? He showed favoritism. James chapter 2, verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Don't favor one over another. They're gifts from God. And parents, we need to keep our promises to our children, including the promise to punish. Some parents, and we were guilty of this early on, will count before they act. And all this does is, well, it prolongs the punishment if they finally do act. And they're taught that disrespect can pay off. We must keep our promises if our word is to be trusted. See? James 5, verse 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest ye fall in condemnation. Don't say you're going to punish them and then say, I'm going to count to three. Well, you said before you were going to punish them. Now you're going to count to three, which sometimes goes to ten. (laughs) As I close up here, I appreciate you for 
are hanging in. Can you see that these are some same principles that God has laid out to have unity and order within, within the church? How we behave as parents in the raising of our children is how we will behave with members in the church, friends. We are to encircle. We are to love, to teach, to discipline, and prepare our children as missionaries to the world. And the same is to be done with each member of the church. And if we are to encircle our family as God encircles us, then we must live and teach His will to our households. And only then will we be united as families and and as a church. Now, I couldn't possibly cover everything, (laughs) but I encourage you to to search this out. Always study it for yourselves. Get those books that I quoted from. Adventist Home, Child Guidance, Mind and Character, Mind, Personality and Character. Very good books. I recommend them to every family. And so the question now is, what is the role and responsibility of the child? And we're going to get to that next time that we get together. I'll close with this, Zechariah 9.16. It was our scripture reading. And the Lord, their God, shall save them in that day as the flock of His people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon His land. Beloved, my wish for you and my prayer for my family and yours is that our families will be jewels in the crown of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for your holy word. We thank you for your promises. Lord, we pray that you forgive us where we have failed. We did things, we do a lot of things, really, uh, as ignorant people, just uneducated. And so we pray you forgive us and teach us, Lord. Help us. Send angels to walk with us, to help guide us, fill us with the Holy Spirit to lead us to the truth. Please send strong angels Angels that excel in strength to surround our children, protect them from the devil. Especially those who are seeking their own way right now as prodigals. Lord, please keep them safe. May they be found in the family of God before it's all said and done and Jesus comes home. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.